You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Smart Sex, Smart Love. We're talking about sex goes beyond the taboos and talking about love goes beyond the honeymoon. I'm Dr. Joe Court. Thanks for tuning in. All right, on today's show, I'll be discussing black culture and sex and sexuality. The social justice movement over the past few years has enabled a new dialogue about privilege, power, entitlements, and access. And this moment in our culture seems like the right time to try to create opportunities for a group of folks who've been traditionally invisible in the research and clinical literature, as well as national sexology organizations. My guest today is Dr. James Wadley, an associate professor and chair of the Counseling and Human Services Program at Lincoln University. He's a licensed professional counselor and marriage, family, and sexuality therapist in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. He's also the founder and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Black Sexuality and Relationships and has a book coming out on black sexuality and sexual health. He's an expert on sexual diversity and race and is on a mission to bring openness and community to those from all walks of life that may otherwise have shied away from getting help for themselves or their families. He's one of the nation's best marriage, family, and sexuality clinicians. Welcome, James Wadley. Thanks for having me, Joe. I really appreciate uh, you reaching out to me, and I'm honored to be on your uh, podcast. Thank you. I feel exactly the same way. I'm really happy. And I wanted to also make sure we add in here that you um, edited a book um, on uh, supervision for therapists around sexology. Isn't that true, too? Yes. Uh, A couple of years ago, I actually co-edited the book with Ricky Siegel, and the title of the book is The Art of Sex Therapy Supervision. Mm -hmm. And so we had a number of prominent folks near and far to contribute to our book. And and, and I'm using our book because it's always felt like the book belongs to uh, the sexology community. And uh, the contributors were able to, you know, offer their professionalism, their expertise and their wisdom and just know how on how to conduct supervision uh, when uh, trying to help supervisees address uh, sensitive issues. Yes, it was such a needed book and it's a really good book, too. I highly recommend it. Um, so could you tell us, I thought we could just start with the basic here of why focus on black sexologists and clinicians? What, what makes that important for people to understand? Um, it, it's why, for me, it's why not. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in my training when I was, uh, so I did my, uh, doctoral work at the university of Pennsylvania and the courses I took and, you know, the trainings that I went to. Very little of it had anything to do with uh, persons of African descent or African-Americans or black folks, whichever uh, term you'd like to use. And so going through that process, it felt like something was missing, right? Mm -hmm. And as uh, as I went through my textbooks, one would be left to believe that, you know, persons of African descent or African-Americans had nothing to do with uh, the history of sexology. So fast forward, uh, you know, I came back, took some time away from the field and came back. And uh, when I would go to conferences or, you know, be in professional spaces, um, there were very few people of color there, including uh, African-Americans. 
So uh, I had already started doing work with the American Association of Blacks in Higher Ed, and the work that I was doing was helping them do uh, conference planning. And somewhere in there, it dawned on me that um, there needed to be a space where I could walk in and not just be the only black guy walking around mm-hmm. or not be, just be the only black person walking around. And and I will say that, you know, in going to different conferences and even in my program, uh, graduate program and beyond, it wasn't that anyone mistreated me or, you know, said anything crazy or rude or anything to me. But uh, I just wanted to see more people who look like me in the field. Mm-hmm. So uh, at that time, maybe about five years ago, I had started to work on a book uh, devoted to uh, black sexuality and relationships. And I don't know, something just hit me uh, on a flight between Philadelphia and Dallas uh, that I wanted to do something that was ongoing, right? So I decided that I was going to try to do a journal. And so sometimes I kind of shoot from the hip and I have these grandiose ideas. And so (laughs) uh, I put together a proposal and I sent it out to um, maybe about a, uh, a couple dozen publishers. The University of Nebraska Press came back to me and a few other publishers came back to me and said, come on, James, let's try to do this journal devoted towards um, black sexuality and relationships. And essentially, the black sexuality is just a confluence of race and sexuality and possibly gender. So they asked me, they said, well, James, all right, this is a great idea. Who's on your editorial board? And I freaked out because I didn't have an editorial board. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I reached out to colleagues again, near and far. And the original board uh, was probably, what, 13, 14 people. And I went, I went back to Nebraska Press. And I said, all right, these are the folks who are going to read and, uh, read and edit the journal and offer uh, a peer review uh, experience. So uh, away we went. So one of my colleagues who sits on my board, her name is Sheila Baldwin, and she's out of Columbia College in Chicago. She says, all right, James, and we had served on uh, AABAG, uh, Blacks and Higher Ed. She said, all right, James, you know, we have these professionals together for this journal. You know, we're, we're ready to go. Have you ever thought about doing a conference? And I said, yeah, you know, I thought about it, but uh, you know what, let's go ahead and try it. So the story is, is that I hired an event planner in Philadelphia who went out and found me this beautiful space in downtown Philly. And so the folks at uh, the Sears Center of Brandywine, they came back to me and said, okay, you want to have a conference? Uh, What's the name of your organization? And so I was like, oh, I don't. I don't want to use profanity on your podcast. You can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. This isn't regulated by the FCC. Yeah. I was like, oh shit! <laughs> I don't have a name, and we were not even an entity. So I had to go back to my board, and I said, "All right, folks, we got three days to figure out what's going to be the name of this entity that wants to host this conference." And so, folks voted, and we came up with the Association of Black Sexologists and Clinicians. I wrapped an LLC around it. And then signed the contract, and away we went. So the contract was signed uh, maybe about 13 months before we hosted our first event. And for me, 
based on my experience of, you know, doing conference planning with American Association of Blacks in Higher Ed, and then based on my experience, I don't know if, I don't think I ever told you this, Joe, but I used to host parties in Philadelphia. Oh. And me, for me, I was like, can I throw an event, a nerd event for black professionals a year in advance and do the planning over the year? And so I was like, yes. <laughs> so wow. I spent the entire year uh, obviously promoting and, you know, trying to put it together. And uh, we ended up having 149 people show up to Philadelphia from as far west as the University of Alaska Anchorage to as far east as Y University, which is in Kenya. And it was awesome. Wow. It was absolutely awesome. And for the first time, uh, not only was I involved in, you know, a circumstance where you have black professionals coming together, but all of them were devoted towards sexology and mm. sexuality studies. And it was great. So um, we've evolved over the years. And uh, I've been involved in a number of organizations that uh, are less flexible than what we are. And that I've always wanted to be a part of an organization that had uh, conferences or events on the other side of the globe, right? Mm -hmm. So because of the success of, the, uh, of our first conference in Philadelphia, we ended up hosting our first spring roundtable series in, uh, in the U.S. Virgin Islands or St. Thomas wow. that next spring. And because that was a, that was a success, we ended up hosting our second conference, which was in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, and then I all, again, I always wanted to do something on the other side of the planet. So I had done some work in Cape town, South Africa. Mm. And then we did our first international lecture series in Cape town, South Africa a few years back. So, uh, to say all that we've been to Philadelphia, Fort Lauderdale and Chicago here in the U S uh, as well as, you know, St. Thomas, we do our event in St. Thomas uh, each year uh, during the last week in April. And what's nice about that event is that, you know, people come and share their clinical research, best practice or pedagogy. We do it on the on the last Monday and Tuesday of April. And that week is also Carnival Week. So not only can you come and be a nerd and, you know, talk about the work that you do, mm. but then you can also come and let your hair down and sit out on the beach with us and enjoy all the uh, festivities, food, and culture of Carnival. Well, let me tell you what you've done for me, and I think a lot of people, I mean, I can't speak for others, but for me, just doing all this, like I met you for the first time, I think, at that Out of Control Sexual Behavior Summer Conference where we were all talking about it from different perspectives. I think that's where I met you, oh, right. right? Right. And I sat through your PowerPoint, and it was the first time that I had ever felt like this, but all of your slides featured people of color if they were images of people. And I was sitting there going, huh, huh, this must be what it feels like to be in my audience. And all of my um, stock images are white. Honestly, I had never, the only time I'd ever thought about it before is a couple of years before your thing. There was, um, I, I talk about in my LGBT presentations, I talk about twinks and a twink is an 18 year old plus male who's young and lean and thin and boyish. And a lot of gay men are attracted to him. He's 18 years old and older. And I always have this picture of this white twink and this black woman uh -huh. in my audience said, um, I just want you to know with all due respect, black, um, 18 year old plus can be twinks too. And I was like, yeah. oh, you know, like I didn't even think about that. And I'm just being honest. And after lunch, she came back and I said, look, I added and I did. And so I just want to appreciate that because I feel like 
some people, when um, I, I, I'll be, you know, I'm white, I'm male, I'm cisgender, but I'm still a minority, right? I'm gay, and I've always felt right. I'm my as a minority, but, but I do have privilege. And when someone comes to me and is angrily saying something to me about my privilege, I can't hear them. But when it when it right. comes at me as an educational or unintentional, but not adversarial, I totally get it, and I feel like you do that in your presentation. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, uh, it, I, I th- yeah, that was in St. Louis. So I think I was, I don't know if it was in St. Louis or yes, not, but anyway, was. in St. Louis, you know, I talked about the talk before we talk about race and sexuality. And I know that a lot of people of color, at least some people of color, excuse me, uh, struggle with their own trauma around discussing race and sexuality. Mm -hmm. And then there's the generational effect of trauma as it relates to sexuality. So then the goal was to have the conversation before the conversation Mm -hmm. about trauma, about race and sexuality. And so uh, for some white folks, they experience trauma when trying to talk about these sensitive issues because either one, they experience privilege and they've never had a conversation about it. And then two, they may not know, some some folks may not know how to empathize with some people of color who have this challenging history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for me, you know, I want to be a medium or a conduit or, you know, and try to facilitate a conversation because ultimately that's what it is. But I think that as professionals, we have to be mindful of people's own uh position or uh, space that they occupy and, you know, try to honor that and that, you know, when people come together, they, they're trying. And for me, I just want folks to try to have the conversation. Me too. I've always felt that way as a gay guy. You know, I, I, maybe there've been times I've been angry and somebody not, you know, being ignorant only because of the way they approached me. But in general, this is an opportunity for us to just talk about this and learn from each other. And I just think it's, so can you say, I often feel that um, for black and African-American, they're underserved when it comes to mental health and addiction programs and sexuality programs and out-of-control behaviors. I've even had therapists say in my um, audiences, well, black people don't come to therapy. And I, I thought you could speak to that. And I can. And I'll say some black people don't go to therapy in the same way that some white people don't go, don't go to therapy exactly, or seek medical attention. And so it's not necessarily uh, uh, stereotyping black people that, you know, black people don't go to therapy. I think that's a people issue. Mm-hmm. And what makes it a people issue is that therapy, as you know, there's a heightened level of vulnerability. And some people aren't ready to have that kind of vulnerability in their lives or experience that kind of vulnerability. But then if we uh, toss in uh, the racial component mm-hmm. and, and a little bit of history, you know, the for some black folks who identify with that, with some portion of black history where you've had, uh, uh, where there is a, a history of mistrust of medical professionals as well as mental health professionals, uh, and I'm thinking about, you know, some of the challenges that, uh, existed with people who uh, were part of the uh, Tuskegee study. So here it is, you have these black men who are injected with syphilis, and then, you know, it comes out that that wasn't supposed to happen, and that shouldn't happen to anyone. Mm. 
And I would say uh, uh, even recently, even more recently, uh, you have encounters of how some professionals abuse their privilege and their power to make suggestions for people of color and their communities or their families to make some sort of change. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and what that might look like is, let's say you are, let's say there, I have a black family and the black family has a kid who's in school. We know that black boys are more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD or oppositional defined disorder or conduct disorder compared to uh, white kids. Mm-hmm. So then how, how does that diagnosis impact their constructions around masculinity and how they are uh, expected to govern themselves in school? Mm. We know that some uh, that black boys and girls who identify as gay, lesbian or bi, they are more likely to uh, experience suicidal ideation or actually commit suicide compared to white kids. So it's not so much that um, it's not so much that black folks struggle with you know vulnerability, but then that's a people issue and not necessarily a racial issue. But if you want to you know combine use the racial component with it, yes, there is a history of some black people, not all. There's a history of mistrust around um, you know the medical uh, the medical community as well as mental health professionals. Mm-hmm. And would you say this is something that I, I know I need to learn more about? I don't know a lot. So there's an African American woman in my practice. I, I run a center here and her name's Rita Clark. And she, um, actually what happens is a lot of people seek her out of color because she's of color. And I, a lot of people right. seek me out as a gay guy because they're gay men, you know, or we have an Orthodox mm-hmm. Jewish therapist who she gets a lot of. So I, I understand that people want to come to sameness and, um, feel like if I come to you, you'll understand what I'm saying. Um, and right. now I lost my point of what I wanted to ask you. Um, oh, that that people typically seek out seek out therapists who look like them or are in a same or have a similar background. And the assumption is that if somebody has a similar background, that they'll be able to identify with whatever it is the client is going through. Yeah, what do you think about that? I think it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it goes into you know my experience of you know being in the field, like I'm out and about, and I'm looking for people who look like me. And it was based on the assumption that if I find other black folks in the field, that they can identify with, I don't know what, my feelings of loneliness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and how they and uh, make an assumption that they've been able to manage it up into a point to where they could have a conversation with me. And, you know, that that's true for many groups of people where you uh, walk into a room and you may uh, seek out other men or you may seek out uh, other women or, you know, people who look like you or people who have a different background yeah. or have a similar background. You know, I had a client once, a very dark skinned black man who um, said to me one day he was he had some an act of prejudice happened to him. And he said, started crying. He said, you don't know what it's like to walk into an elevator and have pe- women clutch their purses and men check their wallets. I see that. Or walk mm-hmm. across the street and at a red light and people locking their doors. I hear that. Mm-hmm. And that, that affects me. And he was right. I had no clue. And I, I have to be honest, I know I've done that over my lifetime. And it never occurred yeah. to me how the person would experience it. I'm only thinking about myself and not having any empathy for what that must be like. Yeah, I just shared with my students last night that, uh, you know, my office in Pennington, New Jersey, uh, there are very few black folks walking around, walking through downtown Pennington, New Jersey. So I'm very mindful mm. of 
when I walk outside, if I were to walk outside right now at 1152, I'm very mindful of my pace. I'm very mindful of where I'm going. And when we say we stay woke, and mm-hmm. I keep looking around because if, you know, I got not even pulled over because I'm on foot. If I got, uh, if I, you know, got pulled over by a cop, you know, my assumption is that anything is possible and hopefully nothing bad will happen. Right. But because of, you know, the trauma that, uh, communal trauma that, you know, some people of color and black folks have endured over the past well, X number of years, you know, I know that some, uh, some engagements with law enforcement don't always turn out favorably. Right. We see that all the time in the news, all the time. Yeah. What would you say are the spe- – I know we don't have a lot of time, but just specific issues that may be a little different in the black culture around sex and sexuality. Do you think there is a lot of differences? Yeah. I wouldn't say a lot of differences, uh, but I, I would say that there are some. Okay. So if you can think back – I can think of – reflect on my training and maybe you can reflect upon yours where did you ever have a conversation around – colorism no right Mm-mm. so colorism is discrimination that happens with uh some people of color towards another person of color where people of lighter hues are typically judged to be more favorable than people of darker hue mm. right mm-hmm. so then if i'm in if i'm in a circumstance where i have uh, if, I, if I'm with my partner and my partner is lighter or darker than me, how does that affect my response towards him, her, or them? And then how does that impact my, uh, one, vulnerability, but then two, sexual response? Because I may have internalized hate about myself and how light or dark I am or possibly how light or dark my partner is. Mm. Never had a conversation like that uh, in any of my trades. But I get it now because, you know, I know enough folks in the community who can have that conversation. One of my supervisees uh, specializes in texturism. And what texturism is, is that there are different textures to people's hair mm-hmm. and that some people's hair are is more or less kinkier than others mm-hmm. or straight than others. Her name is Donna Oriola, so I want to make sure that I, that I acknowledge it. Good. So I've never had that conversation in any of the trainings that I that I that I've been to. Me either. And what's and what's fascinating is that on some listservs, the sexology community is really struggling with evolving into becoming something else. In that if you go to a SAR, more often than not you're gonna see images of young white folks, able bodied engaging in whatever. Yes, let me right. just say what people people don't want to know that. Asar is sexual attitude. Is it reassessment? Reassessment, yes. Yeah, sexual attitude reassessment. And it just helps people get um, desensitized to different sexual acts. I just wanted to say that. Keep going. Thank you. So then professionals in the field of sexology, they're struggling to think about how they would incorporate issues that people of color face, people of color face in their intimate relationships. And there's been a lot of pushback around this is what a SAR is, this is what it should be, this is what you need to credential as. But as the field continues to evolve into embracing the experiences of people of color, people who, I'm probably going to call it out, people who are white, mm-hmm. they 
may do themselves a greater service into learning about some of the nuances of what sex therapy can be. I totally agree. And it's been really more verbal and vocal on the listserv recently. I forget the woman's name, but I'm going to go to her, Sarah. And I feel, I have to be honest that my initial response is I feel shame. Like, I don't know this stuff. Why don't I know this stuff? Why didn't I think of it as important to know? But I have to deal with that on my own and just go and learn. Like when you showed those slides, honestly, I was like, if I felt ashamed, like it's such a no brainer to have more than just white people in my stock images. But it wasn't on my brain. It was a privileged brain, I guess. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that that doesn't mean that, you know, you or anyone else uh, who's not a person of color that you're bad or wrong. It just means that all of us have work to do. Totally. So let me ask you before we uh, come to a close, is there anything we didn't address that you felt is really important in this podcast you want to just add? I wanted to add that my next book is coming out or next or our book is coming out and that book is devoted towards the uh intersection of sexuality studies and leadership studies. Mm. And so for many of us who have grown in the field there's never been a blueprint from how do you get from A to B. So how do you become a sex therapist in Michigan where you're at? Or how do you become uh, a faculty member and you identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender? Or how do you start a podcast, right? Mm. So the book is devoted towards leadership in our field. And the title is The Handbook of Sexuality Leadership, Inspiring Community Engagement, social empowerment, and transformational influence. And so the book was titled that way because as we move, kind of evolve out of this social justice era, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Where in the social justice era, people want to, the field is supposed to be more inclusive, more diverse, and accepting of of people of different backgrounds. As we move out of that, the next era is how do we lead the communities that we represent and how do we impact and engage communities that we don't represent. Mm -hmm. So I got 20 some folks to contribute article, excuse me, contribute manuscripts that are particular to their own background and how they have led or have, or how they have led in the field of sexology. So I'm so excited about it. That's awesome. I, uh, when I tell you I'm excited about it, I, I'm jumping out of my pants right now. Well, tell us where they can find you and find that information when it comes out. Where where can people go? They can go to www.drjameswadley.com. The book is being published through Rutledge. I just chose the book cover, what, yesterday? Mm. And so the book, this is what, uh, August 2019. So the book will probably be out. Uh, in the early part of 2020. I love how excited you are about your work. Um, and it excites me to get excited about your work. And I really, really appreciate that you came on my show and that you were willing to do this because I think it's your, it's important work you're doing. Thank you, James. Thanks for. Thanks for listening to this episode of Smart Sex, Smart Love. I'm Dr. Joe Court, and you can find me on joecourt.com. That's J-O-E-K-O-R-T.com. See you next time.